we would turn once again in this Advent season to prophecies in Isaiah, which speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus, and especially we have been considering and we shall consider tonight his coming as Emmanuel. Last time we considered this wonderful sign of Emmanuel, the virgin birth and the virgin conception and birth of a son whose name would be called Emmanuel. And tonight we consider the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, which also is a prophecy of Emmanuel. Let's read chapter 8, and you'll note at least two times that the name Emmanuel is mentioned. One is literally so, the other not maybe clearly seen, but we'll point that out. Uh, Excuse me, Isaiah and chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mehershalah Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Mehershalah Hashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father, And my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in reason and in Remaliah's son, now therefore behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There's the first time, children, Emmanuel's mentioned, and his land. Verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Evere all you from far countries, gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. That's the second place. For Emmanuel, that is literally in the Hebrew, the word there. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall, and be broken, be snared, and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. 
Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. From the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Thus far we read this chapter in the sacred word, Isaiah chapter 8. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearing and believing, and then to our being doers of the word as we leave this place. Our text, which is the entire chapter 8 of Isaiah, is one of the Emmanuel prophecies, prophecy of Jesus, who himself is called by the angel Emmanuel, God with us. In the prophet Isaiah is a striking and outstanding testimony of the truth of Jesus who would come and who would be called Emmanuel. These are the Emmanuel prophecies in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. In fact, those chapters have been called the book of Emmanuel in Isaiah. There are other ways that Isaiah prophesies of the coming of the Savior. For example, in chapter 9, he's called Wonderful. He's the son who's born, the child who's given. His name is Wonderful and so on. But we would concentrate, at least in this sermon, if not another, also on the Emmanuel prophecies of this book. We are mindful of the fact that this is a true prophecy of God here. This is the word of God. In those days, not having the complete word of God, they, they needed some sorts of helps to understand the truths of Messiah who would come and who was promised. We saw last time that help for them to understand that God was with them in a special way in Emmanuel, we learned that there would be a sign given to the people, the sign of a virgin who would conceive and bear a son and would call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7 and 14. And this time, in chapter 8, we're told, we're, we're, we're um, informed about the fact that there will be another revelation another son born, Meher Shalahashbaz, and another indication thereby that God was with the people in their land. In Isaiah 7, there's the one who's called Emmanuel at his birth, and it's a virgin birth. There's a sign of the presence of God that way. But here in chapter 8, there is this emphasis on Emmanuel's land, even as we read in chapter 8, and verse 8, that the wicked would fill the breadth of their land, O Emmanuel. And there's something also that is occurring here, and we're reminded, and the people need to be reminded that there is Emmanuel in the land, and the enemy shall not speak a word against him. In fact, <clears throat> by those words that I just spoke, 
we are led into the setting here in Isaiah and also the way that we can apply this to today. The setting in Isaiah, chapters 7, or really 6 and following, are all about judgment. It's all about the coming of Assyrians and also the liberals up north in Israel to attack the people of God. At this time, by the sign of the virgin birth and this indication that the land of Judah is Emmanuel's land, there is assurance given to the people that the enemy, though there will be judgment and chastisement, will go no further because Emmanuel is given. The sign of Emmanuel, the virgin birth, is given. And also, and Isaiah needs to write this very large and very clearly, as he indicates the name of his son, Meher Shalahashbaz, they need to understand that even though there's judgment in the land, yet this is Emmanuel's land. It makes all the difference. So, people of God, how does this apply to today? Well, obviously it does, for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, Emmanuel, New Testament fulfillment. In addition, the church is besieged on every side and enduring severe chastisements from God, and she needs to have this encouragement from an Old Testament prophet, the faithful man of God, Isaiah, and through his son signs of Emmanuel and of Emmanuel's land. Beloved, if you didn't think you needed this, I pray that you may know you need this tonight, this sign of Emmanuel, this knowledge of Emmanuel's land, and that you might then be comforted not only in the fact that now you know your need, but that he provides for you in your need. Maybe there's some of us here in many, many ways needing God. Some who are listening on the internet needing God or not even knowing that they need God. Maybe they've messed up or whatever it is. Now, beloved, <clears throat> through faith, we ought to know that Emmanuel's land is where he's put us. In the kingdom of heaven, indeed, so that though there's enemies, they shall only go so far because in Emmanuel's land, God gets the glory in preserving his people for Emmanuel's sake, even unto heaven. So we want to consider under the theme, safe in Emmanuel's land, three things. First of all, that land, safe in where? Second, safe how? How can it be that we're safe in Emmanuel's land? There's all these enemies, and we've beheld the enemy, and behold, he's us. Finally, there is this wonderful assurance that we have that we shall be safe and we shall be able to respond appropriately. Isaiah also brings us that way of the response of the people of God in Emmanuel's land. So, first of all, what is this Emmanuel's land? There's a prophet... There is a, uh, in a, uh, an occasion of prophecy here at the birth of a special son called Meir Shalahashbaz, which means um, speeding to the spoil and hasting to the spoil. 
announcing swift judgment upon Israel. But it is the case that the Lord speaks these words and he speaks them very clearly and he wants it known. He wants Isaiah to write these things with a man's pen, not with some etching tool that's almost indecipherable or some calligraphy that nobody except the the calligraphist can understand. He wants it made plain that there is this, this judgment of God. At the same time, he wants it made plain that this judgment of God comes in a unique place. It's called the land of Emmanuel. The enemies would overflow their banks, and there's a reference here to Assyria. Leaves the, uh, the Euphrates Valley, as it were, up to the north. That's where the enemies were, and they, they come down as a mighty torrent of judgment upon the land even of the people of God. But here's what makes Assyria stop, and here's what ought to make us stop. Where the floods come, that's a special land. It belongs to Emmanuel, God with us, and that makes all the difference. What is this land? Well, it's the promised land. We know of that. Israel was promised the land of Canaan on the east side of the Mediterranean, that little country that was like the stomping ground of all kinds of people who would come through the land on their trade expeditions and they'd Uh, fleece the people if that were possible, and they were able to do this in Israel's demise. But for all of that, Emmanuel's land was the promised land. It was where God was with a people, as in no other place, the people of God, Israel. And this was the land, you see, of the covenant that had been promised by this promise of God to Abraham and to his seed, and part of the promise was a land and a place in the land. So the 12 tribes have been led into that land after the exodus, and after 40 years of wandering, they're led into the land, and they're given the victory over the Canaanites that occupied the land. It became theirs. It was theirs by promise. It was theirs by conquest. It was the land of blessing. Now, this is how the Old Testament pictures the blessing of all the people of God wherever there is Emmanuel. It is a picture, is this realm, this place, this land of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the key to unlocking the scripture, Old and New Testament, and and putting it all together or seeing it as one book that many people miss today. I think Emmanuel's land is still that place where that Jerusalem is and where those Jewish people are, but the Bible speaks of Emmanuel's land now as the place where the kingdom of heaven is, wherever that is, in all the world. In other words, Emmanuel's land is the church. Here's where that can be proven. 1 Peter 2 and verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9. The Apostle Peter there is speaking language similar to our text in Isaiah 8 of a stone which the builders rejected. The stone is Jesus. 
and the builders were the Jews of the Old Testament. But this stone has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense mentioned in Isaiah 8. And so they stumble, he says, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. That's reprobation. But verse 9 is that which calls our attention right now. To the believers, Peter writes, inspired by the Spirit, but you are a chosen generation, you believers, not the Jews who rejected Jesus. You believers in Jesus are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. First Peter 2 and verse 9, all by itself, uh, blows out of the water all the views that say that there's two distinct peoples of God, the Jews and then the Christians, the Jews and then the believers, and they maintain their separate identities, and the Jews are the kingdom people, and the church is a parenthesis. This is dispensationalism. And I mention this because most Christians believe this dispensationalism, but they forget, they ignore the scriptures that says, the people of God, the people of God in the Old Testament is now realized in the people of God of the New Testament. And therefore, all the promises to the people of God, like of land and blessings, a land of milk and honey, are realized in Jesus Christ upon a people that he now gathers, not just from the Jews, though still he is, but from Gentiles and from every nation, tribe, and tongue, from the Sudan, from Holland, from Italy, from Germany, from wherever you are. God makes you his people. And that means we become the promised land. You know that? The church of Jesus Christ is the promised land. That is, the promise now fulfilled in Jesus Christ who shed his blood for that people. This is the one nation under God and blessed of God. It is the kingdom not of this world, though it be in this world. This is how we read our Bibles. There is in the Old Testament, also in our prophecy here, a speaking of things to come. Indeed, a speaking of things that are, but typically and prophetically and by representatives of realities. And so the people of God then is the nation. They were constituted the nation in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and so on as they're gathered around Sinai. But now, Peter says, we are the nation of God who are called to believe among the ones who had not obtained mercy even, among the non-Jews. And I spend time on this because it's so very vital for a proper consideration of all that the Bible says about the one God and the one Savior and the one people of God and all the blessedness that is in Jesus. For after all, it's Emmanuel's land. And that's the fact that stops the Assyrian horde from drowning the people of God. You note that. 
We'll speak of this more in point two. Assyria, like its own river, the Euphrates, which flowed through its its land, strong and mighty, comes and chastises the people of God and, and overwhelms the land and goes over its banks and passes even through Judah. It would carry away captive the northern kingdom of Israel, but now it even passes through Judah and reaches up to the neck. But since this is Emmanuel's land, the people aren't drowned. Only up to the neck and so far. Emmanuel's land. And though the people who come in and assault the people of God, and though they take counsel together, as verse 10 says, it will come to nothing. Though they speak the word and give orders and marching orders to wipe out the people of God and to surround and attack Jerusalem. And they did this in Hezekiah's day, Ahaz's son. Nevertheless, Emmanuel, verse 10, for Emmanuel, this is his land. This is so beautiful, beloved. Emmanuel had been prophesied. He's going to be born. He's going to be conceived and born of a virgin. And there's this son whom Isaiah carries in his hands, Sheer Jashub, a remnant shall return. Prophesying that this son who's born is, is going to be instrumental in the salvation of this people. And, and now, though, Another son is born, and he's like another sermon of another aspect of Emmanuel, Mayor Shalahashbaz, speed to the spoil and haste to the prey. Bring on the judgments. But after all, the judgments shall not be to condemn and completely to annihilate the people of God because this is Emmanuel's land. And though for a time there's judgments, Heartaches, and even you think it's hopeless. Emmanuel's land. You know what that means? That Jesus is everything in the land. Now let's apply it to the New Testament and to the fulfillment of these things. In this land, there is milk and honey. And in the Old Testament, children, that was a sign, good things to eat, big grapes, and all kinds of plenty and rain and sunshine. As long as the people were faithful, God would show his faithfulness and his blessing, defeat of enemies, and so on. Well, that's because it's Emmanuel's land. These are Emmanuel's people. This is where God is with the people because After all, he becomes to them a sanctuary. He will be as a sanctuary, verse 14. In Emmanuel's land, he owns the sanctuary. He is the sanctuary. This is Christmas. He tabernacles among us. He dwells among us. He he comes and he 
becomes the place where we meet with God. And in the Old Testament, there was this Shekinah resting on the Ark of the Covenant glory, this brightness which dazzled the people. Well, Jesus, that sanctuary, is the one who is the brightness of the glory of God, Hebrews says. And we behold his glory in Jesus, his greatness, his majesty, his righteousness, his love, his peace. It's Emmanuel's land. Further, he's the waters of Shiloh. Interesting, all the ways that Jesus is said to be these things by prophecy. Verse 6, inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in reason, that's the Assyrian king, and Remaliah's son, that's Pekah, and Judah was trusting, or, or uh, these people were rejoicing in them. But the waters of Shiloh were there. They were in the land. And those waters are a mysterious way of describing simply the blessings of God in the Spirit. They flow softly. They come to the people of God from the cross of Calvary, and and they flow into us, and they're gentle and yet relentless, and they're this place where the abundance of the cross that was earned for us now is applied to our account. This is Emmanuel's land. The streams are Emmanuel's. They are those which come from himself, the fount of every blessing for which we pray when we sing, come thou fount of every blessing. Come Emmanuel, O come, O come Emmanuel. And he's the rock, but he's a rock of offense, but He's the rock on which we stand as well. And besides that, the people of the land, they are Emmanuel's because it's his land. That is, the people of his good pleasure, the elect of God, the remnant that shall return and who were not going after the, the heathen by the grace of God, they are Emmanuel's too. Beloved, This is the prophecy here, and this is what we need to remember at Christmas time in an Old Testament prophecy of these things. It's important that we remember this and remember how this can be, that we're safe in Emmanuel's land because there's a problem. And the problem is there is judgment. This is almost the irony of the whole passage here. In the midst of a prophecy that Isaiah was called to render judgment upon Israel in the north and even Judah in the south, Emmanuel appears. Emmanuel, God with us. The fact is, though, that in this day, in the time, and not long after Mayor Shalahashbaz would be born, and before he had the knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria would be taken away before the king of Assyria, so the threats to Judah would be annihilated, and yet then there'd be judgment upon Judah too. 
So there was a prophecy here of, of the destruction of Judah's enemies. They come from the north and Israel, their brothers, false brothers, allies with the Syria, Assyrians and they attack Judah. There's judgment upon this. This won't come to pass. And yet Assyria marches on and they go to the people of God too in Judah. And the people of God's sin was terrible. They rejected the waters of Shiloh, of the sent one. That's what that means. That stream that went in Jerusalem where Jesus performed his work of healing, the pool of Siloam. This was said to be the place of Shiloh, indicative of the blessing of God. They rejected it. And they were going after was were the people of God even, the idols. They learned the way of the heathen. They had compromised. And they were worthy of damnation even. That's why God brings the Assyrian horde even so that it goes up to the neck of Judah. And Israel, they're taken captive in 722 B.C. And 140 or so years later, Judah will fall and Jerusalem will fall at the hands of the Babylonian. But this is a foretaste of it of the deservedness of the problem of problems of this great stream, this flood. <clears throat> and so you see, it wasn't just the enemies of the people of God, but the God who sent the enemies, that was Israel's problem. The God who sent the enemies, he was angry with them. They were under his wrath for a time. And here's the irony of it. Why? How could this be? God is the God of Israel. He's the God of promise. He's faithful as we sung. He's faithful and he will not let the, the promise made to David fall to the ground. And he will have a king in Judah. And Jesus will come from the king or come from the king David to be the real king. How can it be? God is sorely chastising the people. He is. And many of the people of Judah are, are wicked and reprobate, and they're not the true people of God. And so what happens is that <clears throat> this sanctuary to which the elect of God are called and they should flee there becomes a place that is not desired of the wicked, and the stone which is their Wonderful Savior becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And verse 15, many among them shall stumble and they shall be fallen, be broken and be snared and be taken. So here you have this prophecy of Emmanuel and it doesn't seem very Christmassy, does it? It doesn't seem like there's tinsel and there's, and there's reasons to deck the halls with boughs of holly and falala and joy to the world, and on earth, and peace, and goodwill to men. It seems like a battle. It is a battle. And there's a judgment that is beginning here in the house of God. Emmanuel is a sign of the judgment that he brings upon the sinners. 
And so the question is, how can it be that the people of God would be safe at this time in Emmanuel's land? How? Can you think of it today? How can it be that the people of God can be safe in, in our land? I mean in the church. You know how many problems there are in the church of Jesus Christ, beloved? More than you could shake a stick at. Troubles everywhere. To the north, the liberals. To the south, the dead in their trespasses and sins, conservatives. The Pharisees, the ones who have the creed but no Christ. Those who haven't advanced in holiness at all because they never had a beginning, even a small beginning, as we heard this morning, to face. This is how the Bible paints it in the Old Testament picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Think of this. This is Emmanuel's land. And people, young people and children, following the lead of of lukewarm parents or, or even those who are hot for doing anything except holiness... They follow the way of the liberals and of the world and they learn the way of the heathen and the justice of God may become social justice and the program of the gospel to preach and disciple the nations may become something like something for good vaguely for this world but not the gospel and not salvation. And pretty soon we're just like the world and the church is becoming like that. And Jesus Christ becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Let's say the liberals and the conservatives. Where are we left, beloved? Where? Where are we left? To follow them? To follow them? Look what they do. After telling what the people of God should do, and we'll speak of that presently, the, those who are exposed to the wrath of God and the chastisement of God in, in verse 19 and so on, they, they say to the people of God, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God, Isaiah says? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? Well, what happens is when the church is, is aware of the fact that God's not happy with them, they're really not aware of that fact. They think it's just maybe they haven't enough get up and go and enough energy to go down to City Hall and to fight the good fight of the Republicans. And we miss the good fight of faith. Or these sought wizards and they sought mediums and so on. Maybe churches, they get enough elders in they'll start calling men who have great promise in the seminary at liberal podunk U somewhere. And they are really appealing and great promise. You might have to pay more for them, but it'll bring them in, I tell you. Wizards in the pulpit are the worst things in the world. Magicians. Ah. 
will fill your church. Do you know how often I get, I get uh, messages from people and say, He'll, we'll build your church for you. We'll bring them in. I don't even send this to the elders. It's kind of embarrassing. Shameful. This is what people are doing. We'll, we'll, we'll get you so you can manage and you can, you can not only do that, but you can have an influence in society. And here's the response of people to the chastisement of God and the barrenness of the church. We got to do something else. We got to do something. We got to be more popular. We got to do this and that and, and engage the community some. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with this. That is, with the principle, the idea of engaging the, the, the community, of course not. But how and why? These are the questions that are often not even answered and addressed. And Emmanuel's land soon becomes the minister's land, the wealthy land the land of wine and women, and song, the church. How in the world could we be safe from this? Here's how, the grace of God. Here's a prophecy, and make sure it's loud, and make sure it's really bold and in human tongue, so that it's not, you, you have an excuse for not knowing this. Meher Shalahashbaz and Shir Jashim, two sons of Isaiah, and Isaiah himself, hear them. Because Emmanuel's land is everything. That's the primary thing here. And the saving of a people in that land in the midst of all of that trouble is God's purpose. That's the reason he gives. This is Emmanuel's land. And the wicked, they come and, and they go so far, but they don't drown you. And God himself has something against you as you are in Adam, but he's chosen you in Christ and he's put you in Christ. So God himself is for you. That's how you're safe. This is the preservation of the saints here. Safe in Emmanuel's land. Because we're bought by Jesus in the land. We're his property. He owns us. And he bought us by his blood. And he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. And the sanctuary to which we flee <clears throat> is indeed a safe place. Everybody's wanting a safe place in the university campuses and I suppose even in churches nowadays. The church isn't a safe place. It's impossible, beloved. But the sanctuary sure is a safe place. There's forgiveness there. And there's the word of the Lord to those who are in Christ. You think of this. <clears throat> when... <clears throat> We are told that we are saved by God. <clears throat> we say this. 
if God be for us, who can be against us? Because, beloved, it's the case. Even in the chastisements of God, remember God is our Father and He's for us. And if that's the case, if the Assyrians come into the land, if your sins rise up against you, if you have this problem and you have this guilt, you leave this with the Lamb, you leave it at the foot of the cross, and then you know the God who's for you and that even you cannot be against you. Even the greatest sinner in the universe, that's, that's who I am, the chief of sinners, cannot be against you. God himself cannot be against you. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, Assyrian, Babylonian, Democrat, Republican, yourself, your family, your past, shall they hound you and shall they separate you from the love of God in Christ? Impossible. Because you're safe in Emmanuel's arms in that land. And the text goes on there to explain further the impossibility of people of God being lost and even of their sinning their way out of the land and sanctuary of Jehovah. Impossible. Because isn't grace greater than sin? And when the enemies conspire and all your sins, they're just, they're coming together and there they are and they're excusing one another. Do you think that that's greater than the blood of Jesus? Do you think that by your faithlessness, God's faithfulness is somehow impinged upon and he withdraws? Do you think that all your words and all your boasting and all your selfishness and covetousness and mine can have the last say in God's plan to save you? Think again, think biblically, think the word of God. And that's the first thing about our response. The people of God who are safe in Emmanuel's land and in the arms of Jesus respond. And that's what Isaiah speaks about. <clears throat> Verse 11 and following, the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people that is the apostate saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. That's the first thing. I go through this step by step. Don't fear the enemy. Don't look at the enemy and say, I'm afraid of you, and this is going to be how I respond because I'm afraid of you. No, no, no. That's his fear God. Honor God. Don't look at the water, Peter. Look to Jesus. Don't look at the waves. Don't look at all the guilt. Because in a very real cross-like way, the guilt is no longer there. 
look at Jesus and know his cleansing. That's the beauty. So fear not people, fear God, meaning honor him and be those who flee to him as to a sanctuary and then bind up the testimony, verse 16, seal the law among my disciples, God says, and and I will wait on the Lord in all of this. This is, and then when they speak about seeking mediums and wizards and so on, and it says seek to the law and to the testimony, it's all, it's all about the word of God. Go to the word of God. Go to the more sure word of testimony. Go to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the word of the word, which is all about Jesus Christ. And while you're at it, read the signs. And that would be... <clears throat> The signs that Jesus gives, verse 18, Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. That's a beautiful statement there, beloved. Used, if I recall, it, one of the children of my own that I baptized. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. You see, that's the whole point Isaiah is trying to make here. It's enough uh, it's, it's not enough if we just present these things here, but now you, you listen to them. In fact, Jesus quotes this in Hebrews as something that's of himself. Here am I and the children you have given me. Here am I and my disciples. And what he's saying is, you hear the word of God and, and then you become like these sermon signs. You become these witnesses. You become a people that is in this world, but... The main thing in this world, beloved, hear this from heaven. The main thing in this world is that you're not of this world. You're in Emmanuel's land in this world. You're in the kingdom of heaven in this world. You're in the arms of God. Though you find yourself in the clutches of demons, you're in the arms of God. You might be in a pickle. You might be in a fix. You might be caught somehow in some sin. Remember, you're in the arms of God and embrace him who embraces you. Wait upon him and follow the lead of the prophet. And then know the power of deliverance and of the water receding from your neck to your waist. And then you can finally walk. And hold your head high, a forgiven child of God. Beloved, we stammer a few things about this very rich prop, uh, prophecy of Emmanuel's land. Being safe in that land in the kingdom of heaven. But it's true, isn't it? And even if one person stammers and, and all of us here in a sort of kind of, yeah, I kind of get it way. Over the days to come. I urge you, hear it more loudly, hear it more clearly than ever I could say from a pulpit. But hear it loudly and hear it clearly because God has spoken. So may we all hear and live as those who love Emmanuel's land, love Emmanuel, our one desire. Amen. We thank you, Father, for the word. We pray, bless us we hear of Emmanuel's land and take heart and know that we're safe in Emmanuel's land 
Though all our sins and all the enemies of the people of God rise up against us, you're for us. And the enemy can go no further than what you've ordained, what you've decreed, and how you provide. And you are always working for our good. And there's some wonderful grace of God in in every cloudy day, not only, but in all the times that are troublesome times that are upon us. You are God. The times are in your hands. The land is in your hand, and especially Emmanuel's land. Hear our prayer, Lord, for your kingdom to come, that many may be gathered in the land to be your true people of God, and that the wicked may be known for what they are, especially in the church, and that we might not follow them and learn the way of the heathen and be as a church that has no more power, no more piety, and would leave off the praise of God. May we be faithful here. May be others be gathered to our midst to love Emmanuel and love Emmanuel's land and find even in the church communion a place to call home, a place that truly is a place of our inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen.